1 Peter chapter 3, and we're looking and we're starting at verse 13. The subject today is suffering. You're like, ooh, I'm so glad I came to church. We get to talk about suffering today. And that's the key word used that Peter is interested in communicating about from really 1 Peter uh, 3 verse 13 all the way through the rest of chapter 4. That's the theme, the redundant word is suffering. And in particular, in particular, he is emphasizing suffering for the Christian faith. He's talking about suffering as a direct result of believing in Jesus Christ. A couple key verses. Let me read them to you. 1 Peter 3, verse 14. He says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then jump down to chapter 4 in verse 16. All the way, you can see that this whole section is dealing with that. He says in verse 16, chapter 4, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. That's really the theme is suffering. Suffering in the Bible comes from a, a Greek word, passion, uh, is where we get the idea of suffering. In fact, the word passion really means to suffer. So when you say, hey, I'm really passionate about something, I'm passionate about cars, or I'm passionate about motorcycles, or I'm passionate about tools, or I'm passionate about the cardinals, okay? Uh, what you're saying is, what you're saying is, I am willing to suffer for that thing I'm passionate about. I'm willing to take risk. I'm willing to spend money. I'm willing to give my time to sacrifice my attention to that thing I am passionate about. I'm willing to suffer for that. And the big question for me and for you, and as we look at that, is I believe that God has made every single one of you a passionate person. Every single one of you. You're very passionate people. And that is from God. And, and I would say that it's good to be passionate about a lot of different things. But the big question is, not only am I passionate for good things, but am I also, alongside of all of my other passions, am I passionate for God? Am I willing to suffer for God and for Jesus Christ? Do I view my faith and view the gospel as worthy of risk, as worthy of spending money on, as worthy of suffering for when we come to 1 Peter chapter 3 and, and following, Peter is addressing Christians who are suffering for their faith. They are being forced to deal with, hey, because I'm a Christian and because I have faith in this gospel, I have to suffer consequences directly as a result of that. And what's happening to these Christians in the first century is they are, like all human beings, they are tempted to go, is this really worth it? And you can almost feel that Peter senses that some of these Christians are going, you know what, this isn't what I thought it was, and this isn't worth suffering for. And you can almost sense that Christians are wanting to back off of their faith because it's costing them something. 
And the big question that Peter wants to deal with is he wants to tell them that there is no one and nothing more worthy of our suffering than God and his gospel. In fact, God is the most worthy of our sacrifice. God is the most worthy of our value and our treasure and worthy of our being willing to suffer because God is awesome. And this last week, I promised my girls as a dad, and you know, when you make a promise as a dad, you got to keep the promise. Can I get an amen? As soon as you make a promise, you got to keep that promise. And I promised them at the beginning of the baseball season, before the baseball season is out, I will take you to a St. Louis Cardinal baseball game. All Cubs fans, stay in your seats. Don't leave. But I promised them that. And we are in the, oh, yeah. They're like, you're good, Megan. I know you're a Cardinal fan. You're all right. I promised them that. And this is the last homestand. And I got to the end of the year. And one of my daughters was like, Dad, you promised And I was like, okay, and we got tickets, and we went to a Cardinal game on Tuesday. Now, out of all the weeks in my life to go to St. Louis at night and to come back home at 1.30 in the morning, this was the least best week, amen? But I did it because I made the promise. I made the sacrifice, and you know what? We had so much fun. We lost sleep. We were tired. We went. We saw the game. They won, hallelujah, and We came back home, and we made all this sacrifice of time and sleep and money and gas and all of that. Why? Because we believed it was worth it. And some of you, you suffer for things you feel like is worthy. Some of you, you suffer to run in a marathon, and you're willing to make sacrifices in your diet. Some of you, you make sacrifices to run the 3K or the 5K, or you make sacrifices to be, you know, Chicago Bears fan, you know. (laughs) passion that's Pat Doug Doug knows that's passion and Peter what Peter is saying in chapter 3 and 4 listen God is worthy of passion God is glorious his name is great he is majestic he's worthy of our time he's worthy of our surrender he's worthy of us coming and enjoying him and making whatever risky sacrifice we must And if the world comes and says, you are not to believe in Jesus, we'd say, I'm willing to lay down my life because he's the most worthy of my worship and my glory. That's what Peter's saying. Peter is a great motivational preacher. He's a motivational speaker to these Christians. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to give you so many reasons to be willing to suffer for your faith. And I want you to know, I don't think... That this passage is telling us to go out and look for the opportunity to suffer and be persecuted for our faith. I don't think Peter is saying, you're not a Christian until you are being persecuted for your faith. But I think what Peter is saying is, is your faith the type of faith that would be willing to be persecuted if necessary? Do you have that kind of faith? And what does it take to have that kind of faith in God? In Christ, to have that kind of passionate passion for God. And I think as we begin to look at this passage, we find reasons to be inspired and to be willing to suffer for God. You might think God's not worth suffering for. I don't believe in God. 
That's so many other things that I'm worried about. I'm not worried about suffering for God. I think Peter has reasons to give you and I in grace a willingness, a growing willingness to suffer for God. And let's look at this in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Peter opens up this section and he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now that first verse where he says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? That's not saying, here's what it's not saying. It's not saying, hey, if you are zealous for doing what's good, then all the people who want to persecute you go, you know what, since you're so good, I'm not going to persecute you. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is is that if you are zealous for doing good, what ultimate harm can anyone do to you? And why would he say that? The reason why he would say that is he says, listen, God is for you. You're like, man, I, I want a faith that's willing to suffer for God and the gospel. Here's the first thing you need to remember. God is for you. And if you realize that God is for you, then you can be for God, even if it costs you. Even if that following God is a cost and brings suffering. He says, God is for you. There's a great verse that Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 8. And in Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 31, where Paul says to the Christians in Rome, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's what Peter's saying. Peter's like, look, here's the deal. God is for you. God loves you. God is on your side. And even if the whole world is coming up against you, even if they take away everything from you, they can't take the ultimate thing that is the most valuable thing, which is that God is for you. And he's shown it to you in Jesus Christ. And so he says to them, because God is for you, you have nothing to fear and you should not be troubled by those or the world that comes up against you because of your faith. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. By the suffering because of your faith. He's quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 8 verses 11 through 15. That's a great passage where the people of God are troubled by their enemies. They're surrounded by an army. The king, the leader of God's people is is nervous. And Isaiah the prophet, of course nobody likes the prophet. Because the prophet comes and gets in your face. And Isaiah gets in his face and says, don't be troubled by this enemy of yours. Don't be troubled by this world. In fact, set apart Yahweh in your heart. And don't be scared or terrified. And Peter's saying, you have the manifestation of Yahweh in the person of Jesus Christ who loved you, who gave his life for you, who defeated death. And what you are to do is to set Jesus apart in your heart and remember that through Jesus, God is for you and not against you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And so the question for you and I is, are we setting Christ apart in our heart? You know, I don't know, but you got to get weird about this, by the way. you got to talk to yourself. 
You know what I mean? You got you to remind yourself, like, Christ is for me, not against me. Like, when I'm driving down the road and I'm troubled or I'm fearful or I realize that my faith is causing uh, circumstances to not go exactly my way, sometimes I got to turn down the radio when I'm driving and I got to talk to myself and get weird and start talking to myself like in the third person, like, Josh, God is for you. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is ruling. And as I set him apart in my heart, as I remind myself that Jesus is on the throne, he is the Alpha and the Omega, he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, there's no authority or power above Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. If the whole government would come up against me in my faith, it would not matter because Jesus is over all governing authorities. Amen? You set Christ apart. And your heart is holy. And what begins to happen as you worship Christ, as you have a relationship with him, as you talk to yourself, as you preach the gospel to yourself, what begins to happen is your heart is changed. And coming out of that is actions and attitudes and something different. And people begin to take notice. In fact, as we decide not to be afraid, but in our hearts to honor Christ, the Lord is holy. He says that we should be prepared to make a defense the word for offense comes from the Greek word apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics from. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. As you realize more and more every day that God is for you, not against you, you can be for God. You can preach the gospel. And what's going to begin to happen is your mind is transformed, your heart is transformed, and people, you will have opportunities to give a defense for the hope that you have. And he says, you're going to have the opportunity to do two things. First of all, you can reason with people with gentleness. You can share Jesus with those who don't know him, maybe even with those who are persecuting you in a way that's respectful, in a way that honors the fact that they're made in the image of God. You can share Jesus with them. And Peter's like, listen, you're going to have opportunities. As you're willing to suffer for Christ and you're setting him apart, you're going to have opportunities to share the hope that you have. And that's an exciting thing. And one of the things he says is, you know, you're not supposed to share Christ in a way like, well, God is for me, but he's against you. Like, God is for me because he's forgiven me as a sinner. The reason I have hope is because I am forgiven as a sinner. I am forgiven. I've experienced the grace of God. God has become a human being. He's died for me. He's defeated death. And what he's offered me, he can offer you, anyone. You could be in front of a court, chained up with your arms behind your back, in jail because of your faith. And you could still, with gentleness, give an answer for the reason and say, I know that you've put me in jail. I know that you've put me in prison. I know that the reason why I'm here is because I believe in Jesus. But let me share something with you. What I have, you can have because I'm a sinner saved by grace. Jesus came to save sinners. And you can experience salvation as a fellow human being. That's what Paul did over and over and over again in the book of Acts. You remember Stephen the martyr? Do you remember him? And he went into that temple and he said to them, this temple is no longer the way to God. The way to God is through Jesus Christ. He died for sins. He defeated death. All of the Old Testament anticipated the work of Jesus Christ. And all of you can be saved. And you remember what they did? They took Stephen out. They stoned him. And while they were stoning him, he lifted up. He lifted up his eyes. He looked at Jesus. And he said, Jesus, forgive them right before he died. 
And in his martyrdom, there was one man who was watching that. Do you remember who that guy was? It was Saul. And Paul saw the difference and the gentleness yet boldness of Stephen in his martyrdom. And he hated Christians and he hated Jesus. But that testimony, I'm convinced, God used to prepare Saul, who would become Paul, and his conversion. And he would write more, almost half of the New Testament. 13 of 27 books. And I believe the seed for that started with Stephen. You see, Stephen set Christ apart. And he was able to, with gentleness, share his faith. So we get the reason with gentleness. And the second thing is we get the reason with reverence. It says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That word respect is in reference to God. See, gentleness is our relationship to people. Respect or fear is in our relationship to God. And so what we get to do is we get to share the hope that we have that God is for us, not against us. And we get to do it in the fear of God with respect and reverence for God. You know, that's so important. I would say... If you and I want a faith that's willing to suffer, that's passionate, we have to remember that God is for us. We set apart Christ in our hearts, and we begin to share the faith. God is for us. But then we come to the most powerful part of this passage. Look at verse 18 and following. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 and following. Peter goes on to say, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins... The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Here is one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament to interpret in in terms of some of the details. But broadly speaking, the one thing you can see from this passage is Peter is drawing a picture of the greatness of Jesus Christ. I want you to see this. He starts with Jesus' suffering, and Jesus goes from suffering to death to resurrection all the way to ascension. And so what Peter is doing is he's drawing a, a line, a trajectory that goes up all the way to the right hand of the Father. Jesus started out as a human being born in a cave. Jesus humbled himself and went through all of the suffering and all the temptations of a human being. He died on a cross. He was buried and defeated death. And then he went all the way to the right hand of God. And here's what he is saying. He's saying that Jesus' victory, everybody say victory, is our destiny. Jesus' victory is our destiny. And ultimately, here's what I believe. This is what I believe. I believe that the heart that is willing to be inspired by Jesus Christ is, is the person that will be willing to suffer for the gospel. If you are willing to be inspired by the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you will be willing to suffer for the gospel, to risk everything for God and for the gospel. 
It takes knowing and celebrating the greatness of Jesus Christ. And this passage outlines beautifully the things that we can celebrate about the greatness of of Jesus Christ. Let me give you several points of the greatness of Jesus and the victory of Jesus that is so inspiring to the hearts that are willing to be inspired by Jesus. Are you willing to be inspired by Jesus and his work? The first thing that's inspiring about Jesus Christ, his victory, is verse 18, when he says, Christ also suffered once for sins. Everybody say once. If you have a pen, circle that once. Jesus suffered once for sins. When Jesus went to the cross, it took one time for him to die for our sins to pay the full penalty of all of our sins. I want you to be inspired by that because you know what? Here's the truth. If we were to take the filing cabinet that, that contained all of our sins in this room and we were to pile them up, all the attitudes, all the actions, all the rebellion that's represented here before a holy God, and we were to pile it up, it would pile up so high. It would pile up to the very throne room of God from here, just this small group of people. My sins alone would take care of more than half of that pile. And I feel like at times in my life that it requires many sacrifices for my sins because I'm so rebellious. Many times of atonement. But what this passage is saying is that Jesus is so phenomenally great and sufficient that it took one time to die on the cross to pay for our full penalty. To take away all of our sins and to throw it into the sea of forgetfulness. That not only points to the height of our sin. That points to the goodness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Jesus is far greater than we are willing to imagine. He is far more than we could ever dare hope. He is greater in majesty and sufficiency just because when he died on that cross, it took care of all of our sins. And by the way, every sin of every believer, past, present, and future, all the way until he comes back. That is fantastic. That is awesome. And that's why we, in our theology at Crosspoint, we do not preach that Jesus has to die over and over and over and over and over again. We do not teach that Jesus' death needs something, something else in order for atonement. You're like, I want to be right with God. I want my sins to be forgiven. Well, you don't have to do anything except for receive in your empty hands the sufficient death of Jesus Christ. Your guilt is taken away. Your penalty is done by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. That's inspiring. And the more you walk in that, man, when you take communion and you remember that in his body and in his blood is more than enough to cover your sins, you're inspired. And when you come to church and you hear that Jesus died for you, you're inspired. When you sing the songs like Isaac just led us in about the death and the blood of Jesus for the sons of malice. And you, you sing these songs, you're inspired. And when you take that gospel and you go out there and somebody says something like, I can't believe you're a Christian, say, dude, let me tell you something. And you can't say, dude. I said, dude, dude, I believe that Jesus is far more than a religious figure some kind of religious guru that walked around. I believe Jesus was the son of God who died for me. And if Jesus could die once for all of my sins, then you know what? I can offer him my life. Thomas Watson said, 
Jesus died to take the curse of our sins away, but he did not die to take away the cross from our life. We get to pick up our cross and follow the one who in his one death, one death, paid the full price for our sins. Jesus is great, and his victory is our destiny. Not only did he die once for sins, but he died the righteous for the unrighteous, literally, the righteous one for the unrighteous people. That's what it means. Not only did he die once for sins, but he died as a substitute. Jesus died in my place. What is Christianity? Is Christianity good advice? No. Is Christianity a system of moralism? Absolutely not. Christianity is the good news that God came into the world and he took our place that should have been our place in the judgment of God. What is Christianity? In four words, it is Jesus in my place. What is Christianity in two words? Substitutionary atonement. What is, what is Christianity in two words? Believe No, three words. Believe in Jesus. Jesus paid the full price as my substitute. He is great. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He died once and as our substitute so that we could have a relationship with God, so that we could have peace with God. I need peace with God, don't you? What human being is not looking for peace with God? And how can you ever know if you're going to have peace with God? You can know as you believe in Christ. We call this theologically the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Penal and that one death paid the penalty for a price. Substitution, the righteous died for the unrighteous. Atonement, atonement being at one He brings oneness in our relationship with God. brings us to God being put to death in the flesh. He died. He was buried, the Bible says. He was no longer breathing. He was in that tomb three days. And then he was made alive in the spirit. That means that in his death, he came back to life by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, these passages are outlining how did the physical body of Jesus Christ receive again life after death? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is he's saying the same Holy Spirit that brought Jesus physically back to life is the same Holy Spirit who will give resurrection to our bodies in Life after this life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. Jesus was buried. He came back to life. And that victory is our destiny. That victory is our destiny. That means every time you and I come up against the idea of death and we wonder, what's the hope that I have in the midst of death? The hope is Jesus Christ. I remember being in Boston I was a pastor in Boston and living with all those Red Sox fans and uh, offering them the good news of repentance. All right. All right. It's been a while since I said a joke in this sermon. I thought you needed one. I remember a neighbor of ours 
had a family member who was dying. And in the middle of the night, they called me because they didn't have a pastor available. And they said, will you come up to the hospital and pray with our family? Our family member is dying. And I knew this lady who was dying and knew that she was a believer. And the passage I read over her in that moment comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and following, where it says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is, is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is what we call the good news. And I prayed over that family and over that lady and for, for them. And as soon as I said amen, the moment I said amen, that lady breathed her last. Boom, just like that. And it was as if Jesus came and took her by the hand and translated her from that hospital bed into his kingdom. And how could that be possible? Because Jesus died for her and defeated death for her. Now, I want you all to know something. Life is short. Life is short, isn't it? And we can dress ourselves up and we can go to baseball games and paint our faces and all that's good. We need to enjoy the life we have. But you know what? Compared to eternity, life is a dot on that string. And at the end of the day, what we preach is a gospel that gives hope to that very short life that's here and gone. And Jesus died and defeated death, not to show off, but to share God's power, to give us the hope of everlasting life. And you know what? That has everything to do with suffering for the gospel. Because when we live knowing that life is short, knowing that we're going to live with an inheritance, knowing that we are exiles, that our citizenship is in heaven, we are willing to risk everything for God. We are willing to grow in our passion for God. Jesus defeated death. Look at verses 19 and 20. It goes on to say, After his resurrection, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Spirits in the New Testament always refers to angels. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, meaning angels that are demons, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, this is such a complicated passage. In fact, Martin Luther himself said, This is a great passage. I have no idea what he's saying. Now, if Martin Luther doesn't know what he's saying, Pastor Josh really doesn't know what he's saying, right? Because Marty was a lot smarter than me. However, that being said, I can give you a theory, all right? And here's the theory. When he refers to Noah, he's referring to Genesis 6. And in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, there were these people called the sons of God. Some people believe those were angels. And it says there in Genesis 6 that the sons of God had babies with the daughters of men, which some interpret as demons had and left their boundary of spiritual life and actually created an offspring through human women and created this offspring of giant people. 
God was furious in judgment, all this wickedness, and it was a freakish large race of people that was the product of demons and human beings coming together and procreating. And God then brought the flood and destroyed all of those people as well as all of the wicked except for the eight people in Noah's family. It's very controversial. You can decide whether you want to interpret that way. But if you take this passage with Jude 6, which talks about angels leaving their proper abode, and you take that alongside of this passage, some believe that what it's saying is that when Jesus defeated death in his either, either in between death and resurrection, which I definitely don't think that's happening, I think subsequent to resurrection, in some way, he preached to them his triumph over their demonic powers, in particular, those people. Now, you can deal with that. You can, I mean, Martin Luther didn't know. I certainly don't know for sure. But here's what I do know that this passage is saying. It's saying that Jesus has defeated all demonic powers. In fact, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, the one thing we all agree upon as Christians is that Jesus has defeated and placed all authorities under his feet, has subjected all demonic powers under his authority, which means greater is he that's in you than he who's in the world. And that's good news because you and I are dealing with demons and forces of darkness every day of our life. In fact, there's more demonic activity going on around you than you are willing to admit in every neighborhood, in every community. In every church, Satan is trying to attack. But what we rejoice in is that Jesus is the victor over Satan and his demonic powers. And those who believe in him will be protected by his authority and his power. And so we cannot be possessed by demons. Can I get an amen? His victory is our destiny. And Peter's drawing a picture, guys, here that is just dynamic. Because he's going, he's going to the complete thing. Not only did Jesus take care of the penalty of our sin, Jesus is dealing with the powers of evil. Jesus has overcome everything. Hmm. Not only did he die and defeat death, and as he was ascending, proclaimed his triumph over demonic powers, but then it says in verse 22, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is the cosmic Lord over everything. Jesus is not just over religion. He is over every act. Sovereign at the right hand of God. I read this week, John Piper said, Spiritual leadership and spiritual leaders are optimistic, not because man is good, but because God is in control. And you know what you and I get to say is Jesus is in control. And you know what? Sometimes our life doesn't feel like it's in control. Maybe you're in transition. Maybe you're going through adversity or circumstances that are difficult. Or maybe because of your faith, you are being persecuted. But the one thing you can always say to yourself and preach, Jesus is Lord over all. He's on the throne. He's at the right hand of God. And that brings us to our identification with this victory, which is found in that word baptism. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying... 
that water baptism saves people. In fact, that's exactly what he intends to clarify. He says, baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Not your water baptism saves you, but what baptism indicates saves you. Which is that baptism is an outward sign, like you get in, for us, we believe in believers, baptism by immersion. And you, you get in the water and you come up out of that water symbolically pointing to the fact that spiritually, when we believed in Jesus, we were cleansed. And we came up alive and we will survive the judgment of God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is a sign of our identification with Jesus Christ. It's kind of like this. I, at my house, I've got an American flag. We, from Oklahoma, we like to say, America. America. And I got my America flag. And I, I put that flag on my porch and it, and it waves. And that way when people drive by my home, they can see an outward sign of my citizenship to my country. Now, the American flag does not make me a citizen of America. The American flag points to an appeal to anybody who's going by that I am an American citizen. And that's what our baptism is. Our water baptism is appeal to God. God, I have believed in Jesus. I am identified with Jesus. My conscience is clear because I'm forgiven. Because Jesus has paid the full price. And therefore, his victory is my victory. Do you believe in Christ? Are you identified with him? Because if you believe in Christ, then his victory is your destiny. And the more you walk in that victory that he has provided, the more you realize that that is your destiny, the more you will be willing to suffer. Because here's the thing. We get to suffer with Jesus. We get to die with Jesus. We get to be buried with Jesus. We get to come alive in Jesus. We're going to ascend to heaven with Jesus. We're going to be with the angels with Jesus. We're going to live with Jesus forever and ever. Amen. His victory is our destiny. So when we realize God is for us, when we realize Jesus' victory is our destiny... Man, we will grow in our passion for God. We will be willing to take the blows for our faith. We will be willing to risk things for our faith. We'll be willing to seek out the call that God has for us in the faith. Do you have a faith willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you passionate for God? You know what? There's nobody here who's perfectly passionate for God. We all need growth in this area. And, you know, I don't want you to ever think that Christianity is about you trying to do better or be better or be more committed. What I want you to hear from Peter, and I'm like halfway through the sermon, I'll have to finish it next week. But what I want you to hear from Peter is that it's really not about our performance. It's about us, it's about us being inspired by who Jesus is. It's about us surrendering to him and walking with him and talking to him and saying, Christ... I'm not as passionate for you as I should be, but I need your help in this. Come to Christ. Surrender to Christ. And we'll finish this sermon next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for Scripture. Thank you for revealing your love and your your passion for us. Often, we think that we have to work up a passion for you or we got to work up a commitment for you, but really... Really what our faith is, is seeing how, that you were passionate for us. You suffered on our behalf. You loved us so that we could love you. You came down so that we could go up. You 
served so that we could surrender. God, you are good. And Jesus, you are better than we imagine. You are more than we dare hope. We are, you, are, you are just the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we surrender to you. Let us stand and worship Christ. Let us sing to him. And if you're not a believer this morning, I want to just invite you to turn away from darkness. Turn away from a life without God and turn to the light of Christ. Christ says, all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. Christ is loving and forgiving. Christ is the one who died once for sins. He has more than enough for you to be right with God. He has done more than enough to make you one with God. And all it takes is calling on his name. The Bible says all who believe in Jesus will be saved. Jesus said, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. And so do you believe in Christ? And for us as believers, I think as we go into culture and society, as, as society becomes more antithetical to what we believe about God and life and human beings, I believe we are going to have to choose whether we're willing to suffer for our faith. We're going to have to choose more and more whether we are willing to risk it all for the gospel. So this is a time for you to reflect and see where you're at. If you are being persecuted now, do you have a faith willing to to suffer? And surrender to Jesus. Give him your life. Let's sing to him now. Amen.